Here we are in the Sea of Galilee, and this is a place where Jesus chose to start his ministry. And as we've spoken of previously, right in that direction, facing toward the west, you see that high rocky cliff, that's Mount Arbel. And down below it, that passageway is the very passageway that Jesus would have used when he came from Nazareth here to Galilee to start his ministry. And it's interesting, but not surprising, that he chose to be among the Galileans for the beginning of his ministry. You see, the Galileans at this time were an interesting people. They were different than the Judeans, who were down south toward Jerusalem. The Judeans were very religious, but they were very concerned with the law and the observance of the law. And we see that in the Gospels when Jesus goes to Jerusalem and the way that they deal with him. But the Galileans were a little bit different. They were very religious, to be sure. But they weren't as concerned with the letter of the law as they were with a passionate hope. That is, a messianic expectation. There was, according to my historical studies, a greater messianic expectation up here in the Galilee than there was down in the region of Judea and Jerusalem. The people up here had a passionate hope to be delivered. And so Jesus came and started his messianic ministry right here. And it was a passionate hope. You see, the Galileans were, were a, well, they've been described as volcanic in nature. This is a volcanic region. Uh, when we were on that jetty this morning, we saw volcanic rocks. This is a volcanic region. And the people were sort of volcanic. And so Jesus chose some of his first followers from a, a passionate, volcanic, zealous, hopeful sort of people. I love that. I love that. James and John, the sons of thunder, were just those type. And remember, when, when someone didn't receive their ministry well, they went to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, can we call down fire on these people like Elijah did? They were called the sons of thunder. They're a great representation of what the Galilean Jews were like in the first century. They were passionate. They were loyal. They were more concerned with honor than they were with riches. In Judea, they were more concerned with riches, it's been said historically. Up here, it was honor. During some of the Jewish revolts against the Romans, the most zealous of all zealots were Galileans. The greatest fighters in the battle. Jesus wanted these men for his disciples. Passionate, hopeful, zealous, volcanic men. By the way, Judas was not a Galilean. Interesting, huh? A very special people, a very special place. And what Jesus did was he entered into their world. Isn't that what the Lord did? He stepped down out of darkness into our world. He didn't expect them to change theirs. He came to their world. And their surrounding area became a living parable. You see, this is where they worked every single day. James and John and, and Peter, they just all fished here. Matthew, he collected taxes just right over there. This was their livelihood. This was their hometown. Jesus entered in, and everything that prior to that was just normal, mundane experience became a living parable for them. Jesus would come on the Sea of Galilee and say, hey, you're fishing on the wrong side of the boat. But we know how to fish. Jesus, we've been fishing all night. It's hot during the day. The fish go deep. We've been fishing all night. Jesus gets in and says, everything that you've previously known, you're going to have to surrender if you're going to follow me. I do things differently. 
I'm the king and I have a kingdom. And my kingdom is contrary to this world. Cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And then you'll have a great fish, a great catch, excuse me. And so we see that Jesus steps into the world and and it just all becomes a living parable. Now Jesus is going to do that in our world. He's going to meet us right where we're at. He doesn't come into your life and ask you to just, you know, make these big tumultuous changes. He just meets you right where you are and then he wants to start to instruct you. Now, that region right over there is a place called Tabgah. And that's where we believe the feeding of the 5,000 took place. And after the feeding of the 5,000, something very interesting happened that you're all familiar with. Hopefully you read it this morning. Matthew 14. Open up your Bibles to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, we have in Matthew 14 the feeding of the 5,000, but we're going to pick up the story after that. We're going to deal with that later on this afternoon, but I want us to look in verse 22. It says, and immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. A few things happening in this verse. He's just fed the 5,000. We'll deal with that later. Wonderful story. And he dealt with those people, the multitudes. And now he's wanting to deal with those who are his own. It says, and immediately, meaning with purpose, with something in mind. Jesus is doing something very specific in verse 22. And immediately he made the disciples get in the boat. Now, the word made in Greek is anakazo. It means he forced them to get in the boat. He compelled them with very strong language like a military commander would, he told them to get in the boat. He's finished with the multitudes for a while. He wants to deal with these individual men, these individual hearts. He's doing it with a purpose. And he makes them get in the boat. They don't have any other choice. It's very clear in the Greek. He forces them to get in the boat and go to the other side. Verse 23 And after he sent the multitudes away, and he went up to the mountains by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Now, we have good reason to believe that when Jesus went to the mountain and prayed, it could have been Arbel. Look at Arbel right behind you over there. That's the best vantage point over the Galilee. The storms would come ripping down here out of this direction onto the sea, and from there, Jesus would have a great vantage point. It could have been this mountain. It could have been any one of them. But if I was the Lord, I would have loved Mount Arbel. Look at that. We're going to go up there and pray ourselves in a couple days. Regardless, he made them get in the boat, and it was about evening time. Jesus heads up to the mountain to pray. Now, he's wanting to teach them a lesson. Remember, they're Galileans. They're strong. They're valiant. They're courageous, they're volcanic, they spent their whole life on this lake. This lake is the most familiar thing in the world to them. Jesus is going to shake it up a little bit. He stepped into their world, but he's going to shake it up a little bit. Next verse, verse 24. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land. A stadia is about 600 feet. So the boat was pretty far out, it was further out than we are right now. And it was battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. That word battered in the Greek is hupatasso. 
It means that the boat was in subjection to the waves. Hupatasso. To be under or to be in subjection to. Okay, so the boat was sinking. Literally, Jesus is sinking their boat right now. He made them get into the boat, and then a storm came. Are we to believe that that storm was a little coinky-dink? That when Jesus gets up on the mountain, he goes, Oh no, a storm! I didn't know that was going to happen. No, this is a God-ordained storm. Because Jesus is wanting to teach his boys a very important lesson. They could not be a part of the crowd to learn that lesson. Catch that, please. He sent the multitudes away. They could not any longer be a part of the crowd to catch this lesson. Also, they had to obey him to get this lesson. Get in the boat. The Lord deals with us like that all the time. Anakazo, he compels. He commands us to do certain things. We have this horrible thing called free will. Too often we exercise it and we don't obey. The life of the disciples would have been radically different. Perhaps the world would have been different had they not obeyed at this juncture. I want you to think about that in your daily lives. These were just normal guys. These were just fishermen. Jesus stepped into the world and they were going to impact the whole world for thousands of years to come. And the impact that they would have on the world was dependent upon their obedience that they would have in this moment. Brothers, sisters, that is true of us. And just like this lake was their world, Jesus is doing things in your world, your workplace, your family. And I'll tell you very frankly what he's doing right here. He's sinking their boat. He's sinking their boat. Everything that was comfortable to them. He's sinking it right now. That was a God-ordained storm. The boat was in subjection to the waves. Literally in the Greek, it was under the waves. Verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Fourth watch of the night. They got into the boat just before evening. In that time, the night was divided into four sections. The first watch was from 6 to 9 p.m. The second watch was from 9 to midnight. The third watch would be from midnight until 3 a.m. The fourth watch of the night was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. These guys have been in the boat for at least nine hours. Nine hours these guys have been in the boat while the boat is in subjection to the waves. If they wanted to get home, they had to paddle that way or sail that way. But the wind is coming this way. There's no way for them to get home. They're out on the boat at night. The boat is in subjection to the waves. And Jesus purposefully, from his kind heart, leaves them there for nine hours. You see, there was a breaking process that needed to happen in the heart of the disciples. They were awesome men, valiant men. They were Galileans. They were sons of thunder. They were volcanic and Jesus loved that. That's why he chose them. But there needed to be a harnessing of that power. Do you understand that? You understand what it means to be meek? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And these men were going to inherit the earth. In the sense that they would be the apostles that were sent. And in the kingdom, they'll play a role. Blessed are the meek. Meek means power in subjection. Power in submission. In Europe, if you go to the horse races and a certain horse wins, they call it the meek horse. The meek horse. It, it wasn't the weak horse. It was the meek horse. It was the horse that was the fastest and the most powerful, but 
most submitted to the one holding the reins. There's a key. That horse was the one that was most submitted to the ones holding the reins, or the one holding the reins, the meek horse. Jesus was wanting to get the reins of these men's lives. And he wants to do that in our lives. And to do that, sometimes he's got to shake us up. We understand that, don't we? He's going to step into our world, but sometimes he shakes it up a bit. And he waited until the fourth watch. Now, you've heard the saying, it's darkest before the dawn. Sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., after nine hours of doing everything that they knew what to do, Jesus finally comes. The reason he waited so long is because it took them that long to exhaust themselves of all their know-how, of years of fishing on this lake, all their own resources, all their ingenuity, all the possibilities had to be exhausted by them before Jesus came. It's been said, when you get to the end of yourself, you get to the beginning of God. So many times in the Christian life, that's the failure, is we never really get over self. And yet Jesus said, just a few miles north of here, and we'll go there in a few days, at a place called Caesarea Philippi. He said, if you want to come after me, you've got to pick up your cross and deny yourself. So often we never get to the end of ourselves and so we never really get into God. Jesus wanted to make sure that they got into who he was. And so they ordained a storm. God ordained a storm for them rather. And he comes in the final hour walking on the very circumstances that seem so threatening. Think about that. It seemed so threatening. It seemed like the end of the world. It seemed like there was nothing they could do. And Jesus just comes walking on those very circumstances. That's potent for our lives. You know, it kind of depends on your perspective. Who's bigger? Jesus or your drama? Jesus or your drama? Well, it depends on whether you're walking in the spirit or the flesh. If you're in the flesh, the drama just seems insurmountable. When you're in the spirit, well, then you've got a big God perspective. You know what I mean? And he just comes walking on the very circumstances that seem so threatening to others. Verse 26, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, It is a ghost. Uh, the Jews had some interesting ideas during those times about water and the spirit world. We won't get into it, but they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Verse 27, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Remember our story of Joshua? We just studied Joshua for nine months. Jesus is saying the same thing here that he said to Joshua. Take courage. Don't be afraid. I am with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. It seems like you're sinking. It seems like everything is falling apart. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You've gotten to the end of yourself. And every way that you thought you were great and valiant, you are now weak and vulnerable. Don't worry. I'm here. Oh, I love the Lord. Verse 28, and Peter, a perfect representation of a first century Jewish Galilean. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. There's a courageous Galilean. If it's you, Lord, I want to walk on the water to you. Verse 29, and Jesus said, come on, Peter. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. 
Bible teachers love to pick on Peter. I do. I identify with Peter a lot. He's easy to tease. He makes some of the biggest blunders in the New Testament. But the man walked on water. There was not another human in the history of the world that said, Jesus, I want to walk on water. Joshua was a man such as that. Remember when that sun was rising this morning when we were on the Sea of Galilee and there were those clouds and, and you could see the movement of the sun. You know what I mean? Really, it's the earth moving, but from our perspective, the sun. Imagine Joshua. Sun, stand still. Wow. And Peter. Hey, Lord, if that's you, I want to walk on the water to you. What are you asking the Lord for in your life? You have not because you ask not. So oftentimes we experience just a little bit of what God has for us because we just ask for a little bit. We just settle for less. We're just consumed with self. We haven't come to the fourth watch. We're not in subjection to the wind and the waves yet. We never obeyed Jesus to get in the boat, whatever it might be. Well, Peter obeyed the Lord. He got in the boat. And what did that get him? A storm. Welcome to Christianity. <laughs> Romans 5 says, We rejoice in tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, yeah, nine hours in a sinking boat. And perseverance, proven character. Proven character, absolutely, the disciples, after walking with Jesus. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. And Peter walked on water. Next verse, though. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out and said, Lord, save me. We've talked about that lesson before. It's not complicated, but it's poignant. He got his eyes off of Jesus and onto the circumstances and he started to sink right down into him. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a big one. Romans 12 tells us to fix our gaze on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Christ Jesus. As long as Peter had his eyes on the person of Jesus Christ, he walked on water. He was above the circumstances. He transcended those things. He was not consumed by those things. He was like the Apostle Paul who said, I do not consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that we shall see. The wind and the waves, not even worth talking about in light of Jesus Christ and his promises and his plan for us. But when Peter got his eyes off of Jesus and onto the wind and on the waves, those same circumstances that he was a few moments before, triumphant over and victorious over because of the command of the Lord, he began to sink down into him. And even at that moment, Jesus is still Jesus. He says, Lord, save me. Shortest prayer in the Bible. Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. Jesus saved him pulled him up out of that sinking water, took him out the miry clay, so to speak, brought him on the rock, so to speak. Jesus just lifts him up out of those circumstances. And then Jesus instructs him because the Lord always wants to teach us. And he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You know, so often the Lord's going to ask us questions. That's why it's important to listen to the Lord. That's why it's important that our prayer life is not a monologue, but it's a dialogue. Because in your times of prayer and Bible reading, the Lord will ask you questions. And in the midst of this tumultuous situation where he was sinking, the Lord said, why did you doubt? He really wanted Peter to think about it. Peter, why did you doubt at that moment? What happened in your heart that you stopped believing in me? What changed from when you said, Lord, let me walk on water 
until you begin to sink in the water. He wanted Peter to think about it. Are you listening to the Lord? Because he's asking questions. If you're his, he's asking questions. Just as I ask questions of my son Isaiah, my daughter Daisy, because I'm concerned about their life and I want to know what's happening in their hearts. He's asking questions of you. On this trip, he's going to ask you a whole lot if you'll listen. And they're real good. And then it says in verse 32, And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Now, I love that detail. The Lord waited to stop the wind until he escorted Peter back to the boat. Now, that's real good. Because he could have just caused the wind to stop right then. But he wanted Peter to know what it was like to walk with Jesus through the storm. He wanted Peter to know what it felt like to have his little hand held by the king of the universe. He wanted to walk him through the storm. He certainly could have calmed it right then and there, but he wanted to walk him through it. That's beautiful. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age, Jesus said. Walked him through the storm, onto the boat, and then he calmed the wind and the waves. Now, what happened next in verse 33 is very important. Don't read it yet. What happens in verse 33 never happened previously, ever in the history of the world. You see, we believe in the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Amen? We believe in His eternal existence. In the beginning was a Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. In the beginning, Jesus always has been. And so Jesus has always been worshipped. Jesus has always been worshipped. When the angels were created, they worshipped Jesus Christ. When Jesus came in the flesh, the Magi came from the east. And it says in Luke chapter 3 or so, they worshipped him. Jesus hasn't been worshipped since he was an infant until this moment on the Sea of Galilee. The first time he will be worshipped as Messiah in the midst of his ministry is right here on the Sea of Galilee in a boat very much like this. Verse 33, And those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, You are certainly God's Son. They didn't recognize him in such a way before the storm. It says in Mark chapter 6, in the parallel account, that they went into that storm because they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves and the fishes. Jesus fed 5,000. He multitude, he multiplied, excuse me, the bread and the fish. But that didn't really teach the disciples about who he was. They saw his power. But what really taught them about who Jesus was, was when they were in the storm. And when Jesus took the hand of Peter and walked him through the storm. This is the first time when the disciples ever worship Jesus Christ for who he is. And say, certainly you are the son of God. You see, it's the storms in our life that bring us the closest to who he is. That's why it's so important to obey the Lord. And to listen to the Lord in the midst of the storm. And to not always take the easy way out. To not always be looking for the path of least resistance. And to recognize the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in your daily life. You see, to them it was just another boat ride. To you it's just another day at work. Just another day at the office. Just another day here or there wherever you are. But to Jesus, 
It's an opportunity for you to know him more. The disciples would never forget that. They would never look at a boat the same way again. They would never be on these waters and see him the same again. Every time Peter ever came out again, he'd say, I walked on these waters. I sank in these waters. And then I walked with Jesus in these waters. And after that, I worshiped him. What's the Lord trying to do in your life? What's he speaking to you about? Your life, your workplace, your surroundings are a living parable. Tune yourself to hear the voice of the living God and he'll reveal himself. Amen? Amen. Amen.